This episode of the Hardman Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Alpine Gold, by Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial, by Premier Body Armor, Private Family Banking, and finally by Max D Trailers. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and very excited in this episode to have on the show Mr. Alex Petkus. He is a Princeton PhD. He hosts the Cost of Glory podcast, which is all about Plutarch, the dramatic retelling of so many fantastic stories from history, from Plutarch's lives. This book has shaped so many people around the world, including the founding fathers, Shakespeare, Dante, and more. So he really helps bring this back to life today. We're going to talk about that in this episode of the podcast. And we're going to talk about a couple other things, including how exactly his path crossed with Elon Musk on Twitter. They were talking about Sulla. And uh, who is Sulla? Did he really have his political enemies all whacked? Well, we're going to find out in this Episode. Speaking of leadership, Sulla, of course, you we were talking about the Roman Empire, but what about leadership and rhetoric? How does this play into uh, being a great leader today? We're going to talk about it in this episode. And by the way, I know this is the time of year when everybody is thinking about New Year's resolutions. You're thinking about, okay, this is the year I really need to do it. This episode will be great for that, obviously, on the moral, philosophical, uh, a character side of things, but I also want to encourage you to check out Barbell Logic. I'm still working out with Matt Reynolds. That's been absolutely phenomenal. And one of the things I found it's most helpful for is accountability. So even over the holidays, you know, you, you're you're having, you know, Christmas dinner and Thanksgiving dinner and you're having people over and sometimes you feel like you're going to fall off the wagon. It's just so helpful knowing that your coach is going to be like, hey, man, what about that workout? And it's a good piece of accountability. So you stay with the workouts. I had some sickness was able to uh, really have workouts tailored by Matt to help me get through and around those things just so that you don't give up, but just keep working hard. And uh, yeah, it's been great keeping keeping things real with deadlifts still around. Uh, I think the last set, uh, we were doing one by three at 360. That's pretty good. And bench press 240. I had kind of gone down, busy season. And um, uh, still the coaching is really, really helpful and tailored to you. So check that out, barbelllogic.com. If you're looking to get strong this year, this is the year to do it. You can find that link in the show notes. And now, without further ado, I want to jump into the interview with Alex Petkus, again, from the Cost of Glory podcast. Be sure to check that out as well. You'll find that uh, link in the show notes as well. And enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and joined today by Mr. Alex Petkus. He's got the Cost of Glory podcast. Alex, thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the podcast. Great to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me. Well, Alex, one of the things I want to talk about today is something that uh, you've covered quite extensively in the podcast, which is Plutarch, and then the connection for, uh, especially for Christians, like why would they care about this? Of course, Plutarch has been uh, something that a lot of people have paid attention to from Shakespeare, Beethoven, Emerson, others. It's been a, he's been very influential. Uh, so just start me off with that. Why is Plutarch uh, such a subject of interest to you? I left academia a few years ago and um, I, I had this strong sense that 
the material that I was studying, that the, the classics, I was, so I was a classics professor, um, left a tenure track job, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, I, I, I got into classics because I was interested in early Christianity and, uh, sort of, sort of, you know, following the thread, learned Greek and then got into the, the Greeks who were so influential on the, the, on the language, at least to the new Testament. And so I, I always had this kind of moral mission, if you want to say it as a classicist, that these uh, great texts can really be impactful on your life and can can bring about positive change. And, and I think even for today, for just the kind of unwashed, you know, nothings of the world can be a kind of gateway toward toward Christianity for people. And so when leaving, one of the reasons I left academia is I felt like that mission was sort of becoming more and more impossible to fulfill there. And so I, I, Plutarch was an author that I landed on and he's the basis really of the cost of glory. I'm, I'm kind of trying to, to revive Plutarch for modern times uh, because I think he really nailed it in a lot of ways, in a way that's really been, a t he's, he's a timely author at all times, especially in hard times. He, he writes these great, concise, vivid, dramatic biographies of great men, all of the greatest figures from the basically before Christ. There's 48 or so of them are covered by Plutarch, Julius Caesar, Alexander. And but Plutarch did it not just with the idea of I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to tell you the story. He's not just a historian. He's really first and foremost, he's he calls himself a philosopher. He considers himself like a moralist. And he's doing this to in to instruct and to improve it because he's got something that he thinks this will be of, of high value to my audience. It'll help them succeed in life. It'll help them become better men. And, uh, and so I think he, he, he writes really well, but also with that kind of moral purpose in the background that it's not like they're morality tales by any means. He tells you the true story and what happened, but he also kind of, he's interested in evaluating virtue and vice and what were the good choices that were made and the bad choices that were made by all these great figures that everybody admires. And so I kind of I felt like we today are in a kind of a deficit of of heroism, uh, especially like manly heroes. We're sort of not allowed to have manly heroes in our culture anymore. Uh, I really felt that strongly being in uh, in the longhouse of academia, if you'll excuse the phrase. So um, so so, yeah, that's that's really that's really gets me going about about Plutarch. And it's kind of what I'm trying to project into the world today with the podcast. Yeah, it's so helpful. And, and I was thinking about this, especially, you know, I have young sons and uh, they're at a classical academy. And one of the things that intrigues me about Plutarch is they when they read through it, these stories have a way of just sticking with them. Um, and it's, you know, we're, we're not just brains on a stick and, it, and we don't just receive data points. Uh, but particular uh, interest to me was this sort of biography um, that Plutarch had developed and why that was so effective for, you know, uh, imparting virtue, as you said. Um, and then you look at the early church fathers, uh, you know, Clement of Alexandria, uh, guys like this who, who were pointing to this and saying, this is really useful. Of course, Cotton Mather, uh, you've pointed out, was also uh, really into Plutarch. So so I guess speak a little bit about that that form of biography that was being used and, and why that was so important for uh, teaching virtue. Biography, it's funny enough, was actually invented by philosophers in the fourth century BC uh, as a kind of tool of moral instruction. The first biography that we have is 
Isocrates is Evagoras. It's kind of a, a funeral oration, a, a, a eulogy of a great man who's a king. And the better known one was probably a, like 10 years after that one, but in the same spirit is by another guy who called himself a philosopher, Xenophon, who's probably better known to people, the, you know, the author of the Anabasis, a great man of action himself. He wrote this biography of the Spartan king, Agesilaus, who had just died. It became a tool of moral instruction for philosophers who, as Aristotle observed, you know, character is like virtue. In order to be real, it has to kind of sink into your character over time. And the way that you illustrate character and the way that you really display character is almost character is almost like an epiphenomenon that is the sum of your actions. So, you know, you can't really see character except in action. And I think that's such an important part of of moral transmission for for humans. You know, we really learn how to be great and virtuous by watching other people do it. We're highly mimetic. Aristotle talks about man is the most imitative. Mimetic means imitative from, from the Greek. We're the most mimetic of all creatures, you know. And and so that's part of our power as humans. It's the way God created us. And this is how, say, God decided, say, the, the early Christians decided to to convey the gospel when when Christ came to earth. You know, he, they, he, they chose the, the biography genre, right? The gospels are basically Greek biographies. And and I think it's really interesting to note that not every culture produces biographies. Yeah, it's like it's like a, a certain literary tool that we take for granted today. But somebody had to come up with this idea that like, OK, we're going to tell a story of uh, a, a great notable figure and we're going to select for certain events and we're going to tell it in a certain sequence and we're going to tell certain kinds of anecdotes that reveal the character, especially that great man, so that you can emulate him, you, you know, to, to like distill the essence of what this guy was all about in a 30 to 50 page text, which is what Plutarch does. And it's what the the the, the evangelists do. So um, I, I think that the genre of biography, um, I, I never really was that into it when I was younger because they always just seem so thick and boring, you know, <laughs> like so many biographies are doorstops and uh, they want to recount every event. And it's like, do I? Oh. Um, but but the great thing about ancient biographies, it's very concise, actually. So I try to stick to, stick to that spirit. Yeah, that's really helpful. One of the, one of the quotes and we'll share a link to uh, your your Substack article here. What I love was you said reading. Thucydides is a little like slunking raw eggs. Undeniably, it fortifies you, but it makes some get woozy and throw up the first time. I can definitely uh, the first time I slunked raw eggs, I was like, this is absolutely disgusting. Uh, (laughs) But you're right. I think just having this form to be able to digest so much of what was written before. I think there's also correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the sort of the guys who are interested in masculinity, there seems to be a resurgence in the classics. And what I find interesting about it is we're trying to, you know, recover things like manliness, masculinity. And then you read these guys and you're like, this, this actually isn't new at all. They, they put a lot of thought into this. So I wonder, if, why do you think the resurgence, uh, Plutarch and other just classic Greek works? That's funny about uh, the slonking raw eggs. I, I, I posted that and then a friend of mine wrote me and he said, actually, literally the last time I tried to read Thucydides, I, I got sick and threw up. I think, I think he got, he, he got COVID oh, that's <laughs> coincided wow. with. So it, it, yeah. But um, Thucydides, of course, famous, famous and famously hard Greek historian, you know, like eating your kale, eating your raw kale. It's very good for you. But no, I think, I think that the idea of 
promoting masculinity in the world and uh, and kind of reviving masculinity just seems so unnecessary in prior centuries because you didn't have this whole kind of, uh, let's say, feminization of culture. I'm sure you've talked a lot of, I mean, I know you've talked a lot about this on, on your show. The ancient word for manliness would, would have been Andrea, courage. It's literally the, the ancient Greek word is for, for courage. You know, it's, it's manliness. Manliness is really distillable to courage. Another way of saying it in Latin is virtus, right? Comes from the Latin word vir, just which is man, just like Andrea comes from the word aner, man. So like there is this, there's this intimate connection between being a real man, being manly and just excellence, you know? And, and so I think when we're looking for how do we bring back manliness, we, we have this gigantic tool set from the tradition, but you know, if we reframe it a little bit, we're looking for virtue. We're looking for, and, and virtue you know, in, in contemporary terms, it's like virtue signaling. Virtue has this, can, can be kind of watered down today. But, you know, the way that the Greeks and Romans talked about it is very intimately bound up with manliness, which has as its basis courage. And so um, I think for me, coming from academia, bef- I think, you know, and I, and I came up in it before, the whole crisis of masculinity was was front and center in pop culture. Um, kind of coming back to the whole tradition of uh, just moral philosophy among the Greeks, also among the church fathers who are taking up a lot of the same stuff. You know, it, it, it really it really makes so much of moral philosophy that much more interesting and that much more relevant to go back to it with, oh, they're actually talking about something that that we've we've kind of gutted from our culture um, and when you gut manliness from your culture, when you, when you sort of take away healthy masculinity, you, you actually end up taking away virtue, which I think is one of the reasons why, uh, there's so much, um, silliness out there in high places. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's one of the things you talk about, uh, is really how hard times require courage. I think particularly in our era, uh, one of the quotes you share um, which I really enjoyed. Um, this is Marshall Maurice de Saxe. I mean, that's not the French pronunciation of that, by the way. Uh, but I love the quote. He says, the first of all qualities is courage. Without this, the others are of little value since they cannot be used. So even the idea that courage is this primary virtue, if you will, sort of the, I think C.S. Lewis said something very similar. Um, I was tying it to something recently. I was reading in Douglas Southall Freeman's biography of Robert E. Lee, uh, who was really trained in the Mexican War under Winfield Scott, who was an avid student of Napoleon. And uh, coming out of that war, Lee said the number one lesson he learned from military operations was what he called audacity. He said that, you know, you saw it in Napoleon, you saw it in Winfield Scott. And so that would carry over into sort of, you know, the Civil War and how he would conduct his affairs. And a lot of the reason for his success But as I'm working with young men in the church and outside of it, it, it's really interesting to me. This seems to be one of the areas where we're most lacking. Uh, So I guess just give me the uh, kind of the summary of why hard times and courage are so important, you know, to capture courage for men in this time and to instill that in them. Yeah. And this idea of courage is the foundation of virtues is, you know, it's an old thought. It recurs in a lot of places. But, you know, when, when it comes from a guy who's like led large armies and defeated large armies in battle, you know, it's some somehow it, it gains a little bit more weight from it. But yeah, so I think 
on the hard times point, one of the one of the things that I think is really interesting about Plutarch in particular is his popularity in the 18th century for and his, like he's such a formative figure for early America, which I mean, even before the Revolutionary War, you have the French and Indian War, you have Indians at the on the borders. You know, there's this expansionism, you know, it's it's it's, it's a kind of era of troubled times and chaos and risk. And and like those are particularly the times when you need um, this store of courage. And I think one of the ways well, Pl Plato talks about this in the Republic, one of the ways that you instill courage in yourself and in the society is by is like what we, we were just talking about mimesis by throwing a bunch of examples of real courageous men. Fictional ones can also work. And uh, and you kind of get it by osmosis. You you get it by osmosis through stories. You also get it through practice, of course, by actually putting yourself at risk and um, you know, facing challenges, physical challenges. But I think that this this idea that stories give you courage is brilliantly illustrated by uh, Washington at Valley Forge. So Winter Valley Forge, seventeen seventy seven eight. He's there. They're low on supplies. It's way colder than it should be. Um, everybody's miserable. Washington and, you know, they're, 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 you know, the odds are really against them. Washington decides to stage at Valley Forge for his for his army, uh, his favorite play, which is Addison's Cato, which is basically based on Plutarch, Plutarch's life of Cato, this famous stoic. But he, he stages this like drama for his men <laughs> at Valley Forge precisely to give him that courage. And Cato is this great story of a Roman leader who stood up to Julius Caesar in the, in the cause of liberty and Republic. Um, you know, the, and there's this great quote I, I like from it. Uh, some, somebody who really hates Cato says to another person who also hates Cato, um, you have, thou hast seen Mount Atlas while storms and tempests thunder on its brow and oceans cast their billows at its feet. It stands unmoved. Such is that haughty man, his towering soul, midst all the shocks and injuries of fortune, rises superior and towers over Caesar. And so Washington wanted his men to hear those words of like brave men being brave and being kind of carved at by weaker men, uh, which I think is also part of the drama of, of instilling courage. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really times like that that you need those, those, those high minded, powerful stories. And I just think, you know, a bunch of ragamuffin uh, colonial soldiers hearing that is just so funny and so, so foreign to the way that we think about the function of high literature, right? It, and we call it high and these, these distinctions are kind of, you know, it's not, they don't necessarily apply across time. So, so in a lot of ways, I think that this is one of the things that people got from Plutarch. Plutarch was like the second most likely book to be on your shelf in the American colonies. Uh, they're just kind of like men fortifying themselves with a stories of really courageous men from the past. And like, there's a lot of flawed characters in Plutarch, but all of them have got this physical care, courage. Nobody becomes great, even greatly bad, without that base virtue of of like physical daring audacity. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, it reminds me I was having a conversation recently with Dr. Glenn Sunshine. We had interviewed him for uh, the King's Hall podcast, talking about Christendom and all this stuff. And 
uh, we were talking about the founders in America and how steeped in the classics they were. And uh, something you had said, I, I wanted to ask him, I was, uh, I'm going to gonna ask another guy with a PhD and I'm going to ask him what he thinks about this. I said, what were the founders reading? And without hesitation, he said, oh, Plutarch, for sure. Like that had to be the first thing. Uh, so I find that really interesting in how uh, it shapes uh, great men. And you look at these eras of great men. Uh, what do you think about our time? I've often heard this uh, said that our time produces few great men. And uh, I wonder if you think that's true. And, and if so, wh- why is that the case? And to second that Plutarch thing, I, I, I was reminded just also Valley Forge at that same time, Hamilton is there with Washington and he's staying up late in the night reading Plutarch. And he took like 50 pages of notes in his paybook on Plutarch's lives while at Valley Forge. So so they're really just pumping themselves full of the stuff. And then uh, Hamilton said, you know, a, a young statesman could do no better than to have the holy writ in one hand and Plutarch in the other. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it has to do with the gutting of education. And the book recently came out, The um, Battle for the American Mind, Hegseth and, and Goodwin, I believe. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But Basically, you know, there there has actually been this long-standing campaign since the late 19th century, and it really sped up in the post-war period. And Chris Rufo has also talked about this uh, in his new book on the you know the American Cultural Revolution. There was an attempt to get well, and a successful attempt to get the classics out of education to kind of gut the American education system, take rewrite history. Down with the classics, I saw this very front and center in my own discipline. It's one of the reasons I, I left the institutional study of classics. You know, I think that there's a lot of factors, right? Like there's there's a lot of challenges that that men face today and technology is has its own set of challenges. And so does um, the fact that we have these big bureaucratic institutions that are unelected that kind of, but at the least you could do is educate your sons right and educate yourself right to fortify yourself and and uh, and see the possibilities that are are in front of you that you're not willing to look at because maybe you don't have the daring to to aspire. And I think if there's one lesson from Plutarch, it's that the cur- the courageous write the rules. You know, if you if you want to rewrite them, the the number one thing you need is is the fortitude and the daring. And you get that by studying other people who've done similar daring things, maybe different daring things, but, but, but you can kind of get that daring by, by osmosis. As the saying goes, gold is the money of kings, silver is the money of gentlemen, but debt is the money of slaves. If you're tired of seeing your wealth sapped by the silent theft of inflation, consider adding gold to your financial plan. Gold and silver have been recognized as sound money and a store of wealth for centuries. Converting your savings into gold and silver will protect and preserve your wealth so that one day you'll be able to pass down a true inheritance to your children's children. That's where our friends at Alpine Gold Exchange come in. Offering 0% buy-sell spread, gold leases with up to 3.5% annual return, paid in gold, by the way, and secure vaulting right here in Utah, Alpine Gold approaches every transaction with fairness, honesty, and respect, reflecting a strong Christian business ethic in all that they do. Head to Ogden.Gold today or tap the link in the description to sign up or schedule an appointment to speak with an Alpine Gold advisor today and see what would best serve your family. And just so you know, if you schedule a call, you'll be talking with our friends Jace, Ethan, or Stu 
three members of Refuge Church right here in Ogden, Utah. Do you desire to be shrewd financially for the sake of your family and future generations? Well, we know that a robust society depends on getting this right. Success in building and passing on personal wealth. Let's be mature, responsible leaders with the resources God expects us to turn a profit on, to love our children and children's children well. Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial integrates investments, debt, insurance, tax strategies, and legacy planning in a holistic approach, coaching his clients to act wisely. You can do better than you received. You can affect your family's trajectory and maximize your efforts to set up long-term fruitfulness. Joe starts with your values and goals, then provides impactful counsel to help you form and implement your financial plan. Click on the link in the description for Backwards Planning Financial and contact Joe today to get started. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Uh, One of the things you've talked a lot about that fascinates me is zeal and and why that's important. Um, I can remember, especially as a young man, it seemed like the older generation, the number one thing that seemed to annoy them uh, was being zealous and passionate for things. Um, But it is also interesting because I think of things like uh, even the Apostle Paul says, uh, commanding the people in the church who have spiritual gifts, he says, those who lead should lead with zeal. Um, So it was really interesting to me that that zeal and leadership would be combined. Uh, But I wonder if you would start to unpack for us just just what is zeal and why is that so important? Yeah, you're speaking on a subject close to my heart. Uh, So zeal in, in English comes from an ancient Greek word that is a little bit obscured in our modern parlance, but the, the ancient Greek word is zelos or zelos. And Aristotle defines it as a type of pain felt when a man sees present among others who are like him by nature, things good and honorable, which he himself is capable of attaining. So it's a pain that, that when you see you could achieve something and that motivates you to go and achieve it because you see it in an, another person. This is really a, a, an essential quality of leadership. And it's how Plutarch really believes that virtue is produced and transmitted. And this is why he writes his lives. He says over and over again uh, throughout the biographies, like how you know, studying the great lives of the men of the past produces zeal, right? This is, this is uh, the emotion you're supposed to have toward heroes. It's the emotion that produces new heroes for Plutarch and for the Greeks alike. Um, and that definition I gave earlier was uh, Aristotle. So, you know, zeal is really crucial to to the moral formation of a leader. Um, and uh, it's it has this bad rap, I think, today because it has all these overtones of extremism, zealotry, uh, you know, but... But zeal, zeal is dangerous, right? Like zeal is a threat to the powers that be because um, when, when men get excited about achieving something, sometimes that, that, that ends up overturning the social order or at least um, clearing out old leaders to bring in new leaders. And so I think we, we live in an age where we've been kind of conditioned to uh, to not, oh, don't compare yourself to other people. Oh, um, you know, don't be too extreme extremism, right? Like extremism is a bad word, which is crazy when you think about it, that that's a politicized bad word. But, um, 
I think it goes it goes to show this kind of like more broad phenomenon that I think we we're we're living in a deficit of zeal in our culture today. So uh, I'm trying to bring it back. And, and I think Plutarch is the perfect vehicle for it. Yeah, well, it's fascinating because I think, you know, today to be called a zealot or something like that, you know, is generally, you know, that's that's a disparaging remark. And generally when we, people, people use that. But I also think of it even with Christ, you know, quoting from the Old Testament that, uh, you know, his work, the zeal of the Lord will do this um, and being zealous for the house of the Lord and, and sorts of, you know, that's what, you know, leads him on this path to glory and to greatness. Uh, but it's also interesting to me because when you think about it, um, it seems like so much of, you know, the 20th century in particular with education, as you mentioned before, has been sort of this disenchanting. Um, so the, the whole goal is disenchantment. So you read about your heroes and, and really the story now is, well, you thought they were great, but they really weren't. And here's why. But that would have a, a, a broad impact on society and what people thought about leadership and maybe part of the answer for why people aren't aspiring to greatness because we've generally been told it's bad. It it also interests me too in, in Christian circles because things like ambition are generally looked down upon or even wanting to win glory. And, um, but yet scripture so often says that, you know, men are made for glory uh, and, it, and it's a hard road, but uh, it's something worth, uh, you know, aiming at and achieving. Um, so I, I'm curious if you think that's true. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I was definitely, raised in an environment where ambition was kind of, you know, tacitly frowned upon or praised only in a very qualified way. This has been part of my part of my interest in zeal in particular is, is sort of undoing some of the things I think were wrong about my upbringing. And but to to bring this home, like what I think a church father's that I've studied would say is that a we're made in the image of God. And so zeal is a way ambition rightly understood and rightly oriented. Yes, it can, you can be ambitious for, for, for stupid things like getting really rich or, or for, for just like temporal fame, but ambition rightly understood and rightly oriented is about fulfilling your nature. It's about becoming the the fullest version that God created you to uh, of the thing that God created you to be and and you're not going to do that if you don't challenge yourself and strive and and I think that um the, well the the way that the Greeks talk about ambition is is interesting because it is for the ancient Greeks it's it's the love of honor philotimia and they they saw it as a potentially problematic thing because if if you love honor too much that you're willing to do anything at all to get it you can you can end up destroying a city this is this the classic myth of uh the seven against thebes the sons of oedipus quarreling with each other at teocles and polynices and they rip the state apart because they can't tolerate any rivals at the same time it's mostly a good thing for a greek from the perspective of a, of a classic city state because honor is not just uh is not something abstract for the greeks it's very concrete it is the reward that a city gives to its leading members for contributing. So if you uh, are a, a wealthy Athenian, you are not you don't you don't just pay taxes the, the way that, that the rich don't just have like a higher tax burden than the poor. They're asked to do specific things 
such as fun to ship, pay for a tragic, tragic competition, do a chorus at a festival, fix a building. They're called liturgies. And in return, the city honors you. They put your name on a plaque. You get to put, put your name on the boat. There's, and, and everybody knows that you're, you know, Demon Axe did the ship and you're the Navar. And so there is a kind of, the city needs people who love honor in order to function because that's how it rewards its members. And I think that, that ambition in that sense, if you understand it as the love of honor, which is a fundamentally like a constructive social virtue that, that has ways that it goes off the rails, but it's ultimately about building communities and building healthy societies that ambition is like basically good, but also has the potential to be fallen and, and to kind of get, get, uh, go off the rails and, you know, it's got to be mixed with virtue. It's got to be mixed with, uh, with courage, but also with restraint, with wisdom. And just, it, it's not like, it's not like, a a a, a single solution to, to all of our problems today, but it's certainly, we, we could use more of it always. And, and it is really what, what motivates most people to be their best self, uh, even in Christ, I think. So I think, um, that that's the way that you could kind of theologize it. It's an expression of the image of God in yourself, and it's it's basically good. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, one of the things I want to ask you about, I've been following this. Uh, uh, if people follow along, well, of course, we'll have links for this for the cost of glory. Uh, definitely encourage our listeners to check out uh, your Twitter feed. But one of the things that interested me uh, was your recent interaction over the Spartans. And in particular, uh, I believe it's Brett Devereaux has an article that was titled Spartans were losers. And I immediately was triggered and offended and all sorts of things. Um, and, and, you know, many of us would say, look, yeah, not everything about the culture was great. And, and those are the things everybody wants to point to. Uh, but you were responded to this. And so I just want to ask you that question, Alex, were Spartans really losers? Am I, have I been wrong all this time? <laughs> It's been really popular among classicists to to dog the Spartans to point the fact that oh they had a slave society and yes they did actually have a lot of slaves but um and uh, and that they um, they weren't as great as you thought they were and I think a lot of this kind of comes from resentment at the fact that people that people are willing to idolize the Spartans from Thermopylae without taking a whole course on the Spartans and learning all of the facts and details about Spartan life, you know, that, that we kind of lionize great deeds. Well, so I, I tried to write a response to, to Devro's piece and he, he intentionally put it provocatively, but, you know, I think fundamentally the Spartans are, are interesting to me for a lot of the similar ways that they were interesting to Plato and other state builders of the past, because they achieved an incredible feat by a, a, a rigorous engineering of society around producing excellence, around producing individual excellence. So they have this very difficult and elaborate education system to train their warrior elites and it doesn't just train them in physical courage, which it does, but also trains them in cleverness. Um, and it trains them also, I think, interestingly, to be obedient, both to the laws and to their commanders. So they, the, the Spartans were uh, all of their, their, their whole state is about producing individual excellence, but there's a kind of collectivism there. And people like to blame the Spartans for being the first totalitarian state. And, you know, I, I get that criticism, but 
I think if you look at what they were able to achieve, they defeated the Athenian Empire in the Peloponnesian War, um, the, the famous clash that Thucydides talks about, not just because they were the better fighters. Because if you actually look at the, the Spartan uh, war machine, it's mostly not Spartans. It's mostly allies that love the Spartan way of life, that admire Sparta f- and admire the Spartans for their virtue. You know, uh, just the Spartan, actual Spartan nobility might be a tenth of any given army. They're the, they're the, they're the cutting edge of it, maybe. Um, and, and there's this kind of conflict going on in, in the history of Sparta that they stand for a kind of um, a political ideal. There's an aesthetic to the Spartans that is the best men ruling a, a society, uh, whereas the Athenians are kind of more democratic and some would say demagogic. And a lot of most kind of upper class Greeks, most Greek writers that we have really admired the achievement of classical Athens on the one hand, but also felt that it was the exception to that proved the rule that democracy is mostly bad, <laughs> um, but it can be good in some cases. Um, and it, it all depends on on who the, who are the people leading the democracy, really. Um, so I think I, I think the Spartans are still very admirable and uh, maybe someday I'll write a book about them. But in, in the meantime, I, I've done two podcast episodes, uh, two podcast series on two of the greatest Spartans from around this period. Agesilaus, who is the guy that Xenophon wrote that biography of that I mentioned earlier, the great king of Sparta, long ruling, ruling at the time, during the time that Plato lived. And Lysander, who is um, sort of a little bit older than Agesilaus and was really the, the Spartan commander who engineered the destruction of Athens at this famous great battle of uh, Aegospotomy. Another really fascinating, really outside the box thinker, super clever, just terrifying man to his enemies and, uh, and an object of great devotion to his to his um, to his to his friends. Um, so I, I think the Spartans still have a lot to teach us today. Yeah. Just curious uh, in terms of virtues or things that we look to them and say like this is, you know, I think they've left quite a legacy for, for particularly Western civilization. What sorts of things stand out? One of the books that I recommend when people if people want to get into the Spartans without going down a taking a history class uh, besides my podcast, I really like Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Fire. Uh, yeah, uh, it's fantastic. I got to meet him a couple of weeks ago in person at an event. Uh, he's a really nice guy. Uh, but um, so some of the things that we can take away from the Spartans are um, just a devotion to virtue. And um, I think the Spartans above all were obsessed with the way that they raise their children you know this this is just comes very clear in um plutarch wrote a biography of lycurgus who's this kind of mythical founding figure of sparta and um and half of the time he's talking about the system that that lycurgus instituted to make sure that the citizens were trained in virtue that that that, that paying attention to the way that they eat their meals paying attention to the way that the older boys relate to the younger boys. Of course, they have gender segregated education back then. Paying attention to uh, the way that money is treated in society. The Spartans didn't have money. They, or they didn't have coins. They had these awkward iron spits that they had to trade that were completely useless. You couldn't even, you could maybe grill meat with them, but that's about it. Um, <laughs> Because he didn't want Spartans to be traitors. He wanted them to be warriors. Now, maybe we wouldn't take that particular 
application of that principle. But the principle itself is really interesting that like all of our life, the way that we order it affects our ability to be excellent and to win. And, and, and like her, and I think the Sparta is just the, the epitome of that, that consciousness of like, um, how can we order our lives, you know, mindfully around the principles that we want to live on. And I think that as we're, you know, maybe living in a world as Christians where it's, it's increasingly hostile, it's the negative world as Aaron Wren has been writing about. Um, we need to think a lot about how we arrange our communities, how we arrange our schools. There's this classical school movement happening. We, my daughter's in one. And I think schools can a lot of times be the kernel of new communities forming and new in-person communities. It's so important to, to get to know each other in, in person. So I think that we have a lot to learn from the Spartans as kind of institution builders around a kind of virtuous ideal. Today's episode is sponsored by Premier Body Armor, your top choice for safeguarding your family. What sets them apart? Well, Premier isn't here to convince you to wear a plate carrier around town. Nope. They're focused on innovating armor right into your normal everyday life. Think bulletproof laptop case or lightweight armor insert that fits into your favorite bag and stops most handgun, shotgun, and even rifle ammunition. Unlike much of the tactical industry, choosing Premier Body Armor not only ensures that you're getting amazing armor, but you'll be doing business with a family-owned Christian company. Visit PremierBodyArmor.com today and use promo code KINGSHALL for 10% off your order today. Got questions? Reach out to customer service or send their president an email directly at alex at PremierBodyArmor.com and you can speak to him yourself. Don't wait to invest your family's security, but reach out today to Premier Body Armor. Don't carry a bag? No worries. How about a moisture-wicking athletic t-shirt with minimalist and lightweight soft armor panels built in? Check the link in the show notes or visit premierbodyarmor.com today. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. To join this growing community that is already building wealth into future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking partner Chuck De Laderante at his email, chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and to receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street, and avoid the coming banking meltdown, go to the link in the show notes for more information. Yeah, it's interesting too. I even thinking in, in raising boys and uh, a lot of young men dealing with discipleship and young men in the church, I, I think it was in the gates of fire, but uh, Pressfield makes this uh, kind of comment about how, you know, like a boy at some point would be separated from his father and mentored by another man. And part of the reason for that, you know, he goes kind of through it, the, I guess the psychology of it, um, you know, being that, you know, a, a father will sometimes have blind spots for his own son. His son won't tell him the truth because he wants to please him. And, uh, you know, even that has been formative in the way that I think about discipleship, because it, it is true. It's like, you know, it's great to, you know, obviously mentor and disciple your sons, but you also need other men in the community 
uh, with whom they can be honest and kind of get different perspectives. Uh, but it really comes back to that idea of, you know, raising up other, uh, you know, just whole generations of, of men, particularly, as you said, in our context, when there's uh, quite a bit of hostility. Yeah. And they need to they need to be let off to or, or kicked out of the house for for a period there's uh spartans have this rite of passage in the agoge uh where you have to go and like live in outdoors with a single cloak for a whole season and hunt and steal your food i'm not suggesting that we should have our sons steal food but you know getting them outside of the house at an early age um uh and in the company of 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 mentors um is really important something that you know we we i think we tend to be coddled you know even when we go to college college is not a rite of passage in the in the way that that term was sort of used and uh and that that institution had as such purchase over human culture for so many centuries you know um we need more of those kind of uh getting out from under the thumb of the of the house really working sooner i think that's another reason that that we don't see greatness as much today is because we just we put off that whole becoming a man and becoming a provider until you're 23 24 like that's like the normal given track which is kind of crazy you know like i've been listening i really like this podcast founders i try to model myself in part off of founders and hardcore history so you get the 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 drama with dan carlin you get the practical application with like founders and founders is all about you know the biographies of entrepreneurs and so many of these guys they're working by the time they're 16 and they're learning they're learning some hard skills and out in the world and having to fend for themselves and i think i think we do a disservice by not at least setting up some opportunities for our young men to do that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, one of the other places I've really benefited, it seems like there's an uptick in this as well, but sort of like the stoic philosophy, you got Ryan holiday and people like this. Um, but a lot of it has been really helpful. Uh, so I want to ask you just a little bit about that. The, the interesting thing I find about it, the more I've read like Seneca and some of the other stoic stuff, the more I see it in the apostle Paul, so when you read like the letter to the Philippian church, I'm like, this guy is clearly well-versed in Stoic philosophy. Um, and a lot of people would think Stoicism is joylessness, which is not true. Um, it's really about, I guess, like an emotional self-discipline, being able to process events and really kind of an understanding of, of the way providence works. And when bad things happen, you're like, well, is this expected that bad things happen? Well, yeah. So why are you so upset? You know, that sort of uh, mental training and self-discipline. Uh, but but why, I guess, why do you think that is resurging and then what's the importance of it? Yeah, I think, uh, stoicism is a great positive trend and uh, I've certainly benefited a lot from it myself. The, so the pillars of stoicism to me are focusing on what is in your control and not getting upset about what's not in your control and, and being very careful about where you draw that line because it's it can be both uh a lot more is in your control than you realize and uh you at the same time you stress a lot about the things that you can't control um and that's this is just um very very much a, a translatable into the christian doctrine you know god will provide for the things um you know for tomorrow no need to worry about tomorrow uh, see the lilies of the field. And um, I think stoicism 
was always really good. And, you know, Cato is the, the, the supreme stoic for the, uh, for the ancients. Stoicism is really good at also, uh, you know, living a life according to duty, according to an ideal, um, and being willing to sacrifice for that. But, um, and Seneca talks a lot about Cato and, and, and he, you know, Seneca also talks about zeal and the power of like having an image of the great, uh, sage or, you know, uh, somebody who really lives up to the ideals in your mind constantly, almost like whispering on your shoulder. I've, I've got a couple of, uh, busts behind me on, on my shelf, uh, Julius Caesar and Sulla, like looking over my shoulder, but you know, the, so there's that pillar. And the other pillar for me is live according to nature, which is, which is actually very Christian. And maybe we define nature slightly differently, but, um, that there is, there is a natural way of doing things there that you need to pay attention to how humans are constituted and created. And that, uh, getting, getting emotional about things that aren't in your control is not living according to nature. Actually, you're, you're not created to do that way. You're, you, and, and nature has this, um, human nature mean to, to, to say that there is a human nature is to say that there is a, a better fulfillment of human nature. There's a teleology there. And then there's a worse one. Um, and to, to recognize the moral law as something that is, uh, that is like part of the created order, part of the way that the universe works and to not try to fight against it, uh, to just accept it. Um, so I also love that. There's so many stoic, uh, sayings that I I love the one, um, amor fati, the love of fate. That's actually, um, it's a Latin phrase, but I think Nietzsche actually formulated that one to just, you know, whatever is happening, you just accept it and almost love it. You know, this is, this is what God has given me, the gods, if you're Marcus Aurelius, um, and we should accept it. And, uh, and, and once you kind of take that step of, uh, of embracing the things that you can't change, it gets so much easier to solve these problems, right? So Plutarch is actually not a Stoic. He admires Cato a lot, but he's, um, he's a Platonist uh, and he has some, some essays kind of criticizing the Stoics for various things. But, um, in general, I think the differences are at least on the level of moral philosophy are, um, are rather negligible. And, um, and one of the things that he took from the Stoics was, um, yeah, quotability. They were Seneca is so quotable. There's so many maxims that you can use. And I think that style of, of popular philosophy is something that the Stoics really perfected. And in a way, even though Plutarch disagrees with them on doctrine, certain kind of, you know, issues of doctrine, we don't need to get into. He really, he really took up that, that charge of like popular philosophy. Let's make this applicable for people. So that's, yeah. The, the more the merrier. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's part of the reason it resonates with men, right? Uh, of course, holiday, the, the obstacles, the way for Marcus Aurelius, but you know, you, you actually do those things kind of stick with you. They can be popularized, uh, still very meaningful, but it helps you actually apply them in daily life. If you can actually remember them. Uh, one of the guys you mentioned was uh, Sulla, And uh, we were talking about this before the show started, but it, it's interesting because he, even Elon Musk on your Twitter feed, uh, was responding to something you had said about Sulla. So for, for our listeners, who is Sulla? Uh, why important? And what was the lesson you were trying to, I guess, draw from him uh, in posting about him? Yeah, I think Sulla is, is gotten 
uh, traction a lot lately because he's a he's a great revenge figure. Um, this is, you know, Elon posted a meme a while back. Solo, so Solo was famous for uh, fighting and winning the first great Roman civil war. This is in the generation before Julius Caesar. He actually met Caesar and almost had him executed um, and then spared him famously uh, as a boy. And Sulla was the um, he became a dictator after he won the Civil War. And dictator is this Roman office that he kind of resurrected. It had been lying kind of obsolete for a century and a half. And Sulla resurrects the office of dictator. And um, uh, and he brings it back. And Julius Caesar ends up using using that office, too. But but he does it to, in order to reform the Constitution. He wants after the Civil War, after this bloody Civil War, he fought with Marius. He wants to reform and try to prevent the same the same uh, the, the problems that caused the civil war. Um, but I think, um, and, and one of the ways that he, uh, cleared, <laughs> cleared the stage for his reforms famously was by a massive execution of his political enemies. It was called the proscriptions. So what he did was he, he took the names of, um, 70 or 80 people, I think first, and he posted them on a tablet in the forum for everybody to see. Everybody's name on that list. There's a bounty on their head. So he kind of he leaves it to the private market. And all these guys get either flee or most of them really get captured and executed. And he confiscates their property. And he's, you know, he's got some justice on his side. People were blaming those guys for the Civil War. But it. It ends up he keeps adding names to the list. He keeps oh, people keep rem- reminding him of <laughs> others who had double crossed him. And it ends up being this we laugh, but it's this horrible bloodbath of like it ends up being like a thousand of the richest men in Rome. But uh, so so Elon memed about this, you know, Sulla on the one side of the meme, Santa Claus on the other. You know, he's made a list. He's checked it twice. He knows if you've been naughty or nice. He's also coming to town. <laughs> um, but but I think it came up for me last summer when when Elon was um, David Sachs posted something about, you know, corruption driving the Ukraine war. And and this is just like the Romans, because, you know, corruption often drove Roman wars. Roman wars of expansion were often really driven by private interest, by the people who would who would benefit the most from this senators or the, the kind of tax farming businessmen. And so Sulla kind of responded to David Sachs. Well, maybe we just need a new Sulla. <laughs> um, so, Elon, so, um, always the provocateur. Elon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, there was a whole barrage of articles, people pulling their hair out. Ah, Elon the, loves the dictators and he wants to clear out our political classes in a bloodbath. And, um, but you know, the thing is that, that I think people actually love Sola today. Um, not just for doing that, not just as this idea of like, wouldn't it be nice to get revenge on my enemies? Yes, you know, in my darker moments, I can kind of get excited about that. But interestingly, Sulla laid down the office of dictator after he was done reforming the laws. People thought he would just be dictator for life. He he had he was voted dictator for life. He wasn't going to nobody was going to remove him from office <laughs> at that point. Um, nobody had any chance of doing that. But 
He lays it down after about a year and a half and retires kind of amazingly. And this was so against the mold of what people were expecting. One of the great Roman historians of the late 19th century, Theodore Momsen, compares Sulla to George Washington, a man of the status, stature of George Washington. I think a lot of it had to do with the similar pattern of, you know, he had great power and it really was up to him to lay him down because nobody was really in a position to, to strip him of it. And he did it. Uh, Sulla also has his famous um, uh, kind of a Washington at Washington at Mon- Monmouth moment where he, you know, his troops are all fleeing and he picks up a standard and he charges against the enemy as, you know, in the opposite direction and shames them. Um, but uh, I think Sulla is a fascinating figure. I covered him in the cost of glory, um, even though he sort of has this gruesome uh, side to him. And he was a right wing figure also. Not it's worth mentioning that, uh, you know, he was on, if, if there's a right wing and a left wing in Roman politics, you know, populists, uh, men of the people versus the aristocrats. Sulla is on the side of the right wing, the aristocrats. But um, but, you know, one of the things that I think makes him so worth studying is because he is um, he has a lot of these virtues. He has a lot of vices, but one of them is physical courage. And you can see this episode after episode. He the way that he captures Jugurtha. Uh, who's this nemesis of the Roman army, this slippery Numidian uh, African um, is it's actually by physically using himself as bait in a, in a hostage negotiation. Um, Incredibly daring guy. He's also a late bloomer. Uh, He just spends his twenties carousing and brothels and going to theaters and writing comedies. Um, And, uh, and he's, he's an incredible general. He, He just one of the most, Greatest commanders, probably like Rome's second greatest commander, but besides Julius Caesar, maybe an equal of Julius Caesar. And he um, he shows a lot of courage fighting against King Mithridates. So I think he's he's a figure worth reviving. Um, uh, uh, but but I think he'll, he'll always be kind of uh, kind, kind of spicy for for the reasons we've talked about. Uh, and Elon's going to keep shilling him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. And it, and it makes for interesting conversation in any event. Uh, one of the things, too, as we're talking about leaders, you can trace this as, as you've kind of done. But, but you look at all the leaders and one of the things that um, they all had is some capacity for rhetoric. Um, so I want to ask you about that. Why is that important for leadership? What is it, first of all? Yeah. So we talked about this a little bit. One of the things that I realized when I was um doing my research on the later Roman empire and on, which is the time when the, you could say the Christian classical tradition is created. When Christians decide we're not going to reject the pagan classics, we're going to use them. But the way that classical education, whatever the equivalent is back then was packaged is basically men need to speak well in order to lead. And the way to do that is to study the great authors, to emulate them, to learn their language, to learn their their examples, and to become articulate through this process of kind of like zeal in education. And, and rhetoric is what that whole system is called. Rhetorike from Greek, it means the speaker's art. And rhetoric, of course, has all these connotations today about nonsense. But it basically just means the speaker's art. 
And the speaker is not just a talker. He's not just a talking head, a media person. The, 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 the person who speaks well is the person who leads the army often or um, is, uh, you know, leading the state. So it, it's about it's about preparing yourself for public life. This is what classical education was about for basically, you know, Europeans up until the mid 19th century, uh, maybe beyond. This is certainly the way that the colonial Americans thought about the, what we call the great books today. It's, it's um, yes, there's, there's all, all this stuff about truth and beauty and improving your mind, but it's really about learning to become a great speaker, to becoming scary in speaking, as the Greeks would say, denos legain, to be really good at, at persuading people um, in all aspects of public life. And so I'm trying to, to revive this a little bit with my podcast. A lot of what we do is looking, look at great speeches that these men make. I did a series on Catiline and Cicero's, um, clash with Catiline. This is great, um, conspirator. Um, and, and I, my whole attitude toward these great lives is not just what can we learn of them, of, from them as, um, leaders to become better leaders, but also to, how do we get to speak like them? Somebody like Sulla, incredibly effective speaker. We don't have a lot of his speeches, but certainly the way that Julius Caesar rose to power because was because he was Rome's second greatest orator. And we have a lot of his texts today. So, so I've actually started a, um, a summer retreat, a men's retreat in Rome where we kind of drill into the ancient art of oratory and there are a lot of tactics and there's a system, a framework for, you know, how you go about collecting your thoughts and how you go about mining the ancient authors for the most useful bits. Um, and when we go to Rome, we, we tour the sites, but we also have a lot of focus on practice because this is one of the lessons that you see again and again in the rhetoric manuals, practice, practice, practice. That's the most important thing. Um, but so part of my mission is really getting this, trying to reorient us as men around like, what is the value of continuing to educate ourselves as we're talking about probably educating our sons, maybe our daughters, um, educating ourselves can really help us advance in our careers. We don't just read books in order to kind of cultivate our minds, but in order to become more effective speakers and we, and the art of rhetoric for me is how do we approach our reading from this perspective of how can I improve and become more persuasive and more effective and, and deploy this, this, this knowledge that I'm getting as a repertoire, as a, as a kind of, as ammo for, for my daily life as a leader and as, and as a business person. Yeah, that's so important. Uh, where can people learn more about that? Uh, the Rome yeah, so costofglory.com is my website. And if you go to costofglory.com slash retreat, it'll tell you about the, the retreat. So we, this will be our second summer running it. We had a blast last summer uh, and we intend to, to do it more often. Well, it's fascinating, too. I think with rhetoric, uh, one of the things that, you know, Paul will say, I think in Corinthians is, you know, I wasn't powerful in speech or something like this. And so people are like, oh, he was a terrible speaker. And then you read a lot of the speeches that we have, particularly in the book of Acts, and you're like, uh, I think this guy had actually mastered rhetoric is what it was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's the logos. It's the it's um, Christ is the greatest order of all time. Right. He's like the most effective speaker that ever lived. 
And uh, and Paul channels a little bit of that. People do think that he was trained in classical rhetoric. I think he sure was. He knows what he's doing. He's got his own style. Um, but man, that that guy had a lot of practice, too. You can tell. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, Alex, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. Of course, we'll point everybody uh, in the show notes where they can check out uh, your Twitter feed. Also, your website. Encourage people to check out the podcast. But again, sir, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Man Podcast. Hopefully it's been beneficial for you. We appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. And if you're not yet a supporter of the show, we encourage you to check the link in the show notes. You can join today for as little as $5 a month. That goes a long way to supporting this work and to supporting the work of New Christendom Press. Once again, encourage you to check out newchristendompress.com slash conference. Come see us at our conference in June. That's June 6th through 8th. Host of great speakers, including Dr. Joe Rigney. We've got Pastor Joel Webin and a number of great speakers lined up. We're going to have music from Pastor Brian Sauve as well. It's going to be a great time. Again, that's newchristendompress.com slash conference. Come and see us at this year's annual conference in Ogden, Utah. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the podcast. And until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.